Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Good morning. Welcome to Good Friday. Uh, For many of us, this Good Friday is completely different to what we're used to. And uh, I just want to say welcome to you if that's the case for you this morning. Maybe this is completely typical for you for Good Friday, being at home watching TV. Welcome to you as well. Uh, Really, you know, here at the Lookout in Tamworth on Good Friday, there's usually four to 500 people up here. And uh, we've got the logistics craziness of trying to ferry people up and down the windy road. And and Phil and Fiona and Chrissy are over there on the barbecue and the coffee carts are lined up, ready to go. Um, you know, it's different and we're coping with different days and, and that's okay. Uh, Armadale City Church, you would have had your dawn service. You're probably the one group of people that are super grateful right now that you didn't have to get up at dawn in Armadale and be outside. Um, but regardless, it, it looks different, it feels different, but what we're celebrating hasn't changed. And so today I want to take us to a passage of scripture about Good Friday, about the cross. Good Friday is all about the cross of Jesus Christ. And so uh, let's look at it. It's Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. It says, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, uh, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man he became obedient he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even death on a cross it's a it's a rich and full and beautiful passage with many applications but really uh, what I want to focus in on today is the separation out of um, humbled himself to death but then it makes the differentiation even death on a cross. We know many of us that Jesus died for us. Why does it matter that he died on a cross? There's an old hymn that sings, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Not only the emblem of suffering, but the emblem of shame. This cross is an emblem of shame. And and that's strange for us. For us, we wear filigreed crosses around our necks. We hang ornate and and decorative crosses on our walls. We we get tattooed um, crosses that are, you know, being embellished onto our arms and shoulders and ankles. How can an emblem of suffering and shame then be made something decorative to ornament our houses and our bodies? How does that work? How, How does this emblem of suffering and shame become something that is so common to us. I can't imagine anyone saying, check out my new ink. I've got the gas chamber here or here on my ankle. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine someone saying, I've got this beautiful new artwork or this beautiful new tapestry. It's the gallows. I'm going to hang it at my front door. It doesn't really work like that. The cross then was an emblem of such shame. The first century Historian, Jewish historian Josephus writes of the Jewish protest of the most pitiable of deaths, that of the death on a cross. The uh, Roman orator Cicero of the first century, he, he, writes, uh, he writes this um, Latin phrase that I'm going to really, really murder right now. And it's uh, crudelici, crudelici mum terramumque 
supplicium. And it means that there is this torturous and awful and cruel penalty. That's what the um, Roman orator wrote about it. Uh, and yet Paul talks about it in, in the same terms, about this emblem of shame. He says that Jesus went from here and then he um, condescended to being human and then he condescended to death, but also not just death, but death on a cross, death on a cross. This death that was relegated and designated for slaves and rebels. We read a, uh, uh, we, and we know about the Roman, uh, the uprising in, in the north of Rome, made famous in the movie Spartacus, where 6,000 slaves, rebels, gladiators, rebelled against the uh, Roman army and 6,000 of them crucified along the 1,300 miles on the road to Rome. That's one person on a cross every 40 odd metres. And there they are, some dying quickly, some taking days to die. But they're serving as a symbol to say, hey, you better have the fear of God, God being Caesar. You better have the fear of Caesar in you. You had better not rise up against the establishment. Dying quickly, dying slowly, but nevertheless, their bodies hanging there until they're completely decomposed. Uh, subject to the element, subject to carrion creatures, subject uh, to the avoidance and the, the disgust and horror of people walking past who didn't want that image to plague their every waking thought and to haunt their dreams. It would have been disgusting to see what the birds had done to those bodies, what the elements had done to those bodies. It would have been absolutely horrific. And yet N.T. Wright, the scholar writes that by six o'clock on Good Friday, the early Christians believed that the world had changed. So what happened? You know, we often see life like a ladder that we start out on one rung and then we progress up the rungs as we go. And the perception of our progress is different for all of us. For some of us, we start out on this rung and, and we think, if I can just get financially secure, I'm going to climb these rungs until I feel fin financial freedom and financial security, whereby if something crazy happens, if we hit a bump in the road, if unforeseen circumstances break out, then I'm safe. And, and so we see this ladder on our way to financial pr freedom. That is progression for us. For others of us, it's amassing stuff. Well, I want to live the great Australian dream and, and get a house for myself. And well, then it's got a double garage, so I need a car. And, and it's annoying when my spouse or someone, one of my kids needs the car, so I need two cars. Uh, and then I, I really need a boat. And if I've got a boat, I may as well have a jet ski. And if I've got a boat and a jet ski, I need a house on the coast to be able to um, make proper use of that. Uh, and, and we, and we amass stuff and, and for some of us, that's what progress looks like. For others of us, progress looks like that we're amassing experiences. We start out and we begin our bucket list and we want to have travel experiences, go to this country, have that amazing adrenaline-filled experience, have that beautiful um, Instagram-worthy experience. And we see progress as climbing up these ladder rungs. Yet Paul describes Jesus as climbing down these ladder rungs. We even would sometimes suggest that, uh, that we'd climb these rungs or, or even go down these rungs in a sacrificial way for others in times of extremity, times like war, times like pandemic, that we would be willing to sacrifice for the greater good. There's a poem that I had to learn in school and present about World War I called Dolce Decorum Est, 
by Wilfred Owen, and it describes the horrors of World War One. It talks about the hacking coughs, the trenches, the cold. It talks about the fear, the fatigue, the marching, the limping, and culminates in this hideous witness of what it's like to die, to see someone die from poisonous gas. And it finishes with the line, then maybe you, or uh, I'm not going to quote it properly, it's a long time since high school, not that long, a little bit long. Um, it's not... It, it, it's you should ask questions you should second guess it when somebody tells you that old lie dolce et decorum est perpatria marie which means in latin it is good and fitting to die for one's country it says you should examine that sure it might seem like it's a good thing to climb down a few rungs but you should examine it because the reality is hideous and the truth is that for jesus that lovely sentiment that we say uh, the, the scripture that we quote, um, you know, greater love has man that, but to lay down one's life for one's friends. And we think, oh yes, beautiful. But the reality was horrific. Climbing down from rung to rung for Jesus and dying that shameful death was absolutely horrific and full of shame. We listen to the language that Paul uses that, that actually he made himself nothing and, and, and took on the very nature of a servant and was made in human likeness, and then was obedient to death, death on a cross. Obedient not only to the Father's plan, but though He was, not only obedient to the eternal cause, though He was, but obedient to death and obedient to the most shameful death that you can imagine. I got given the book um, by my auntie, a, a great book, historical fiction, which you know that I love, called Damascus. And, and it would probably offend a lot of Christians because it's written by a non-Christian author taking biblical characters and weaving a story around them. Uh, but this is a well-reputed, well-researched author who writes, because he's not a Christian, in uncensored terms about the first century. And, and there's a lot of offensive stuff in there. But what struck me was the offence that people took when they were talked to about Jesus, that, that, that this God uh, that was being witnessed about would die on a cross. At every point that that was mentioned, people would recoil in horror. They would be shocked and they would say, surely not. Surely he wouldn't die on a cross. It gave me an indication to just how little I understand about how shameful the cross was. And yet this author writes about these transformative experiences when people accept Jesus, even knowing that he died on the cross. As Paul is giving this poem, he, he uses a technique that he very often uses where he mirrors what he does on one side with the other side. So on one side, he works it down. He says, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, being made in the um, very likeness of a servant and in human likeness and uh, being made a man. Um, let me read it to you. It'd probably come up on the screen. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross and then he starts from that point and says therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord he, he mirrors it on the other side and many people say that this was actually a song that talked about what Jesus did and who he is and so in doing those two things why it actually mattered why it mattered and, and as Paul shines light on Jesus' journey down, he climbed down into this climactic event that we celebrate today that culminates on Sunday, that in light of that, he goes on from the hymn to say, therefore, my dear friends, 
Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. This is where the English language gets tricky. This is where, uh, where we have many meanings for the one word sometimes does us a disservice, but it says there to work out your salvation. And to us that implies, well, I've got to work. I need to work uh, my salvation. I, I, I need to keep, continue to ensure that the balance of the scales is correct and I do more good things than I do bad things, that I work to impress Jesus, that I work to impress God. But that is never the case. We know that salvation is a free gift, that we could never earn what God gives to us, that we have no capacity to earn our way into His good graces, that it is a gift, that in fact, that, that it is um, th- by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. So it can't mean work. So then in our English language, we'd go next meaning, we'll work out. Does that mean like to figure it out? Does it mean that we have to try to to work out what it means? Well, can we ever truly plumb the depths of the salvation plan and the mystery that God has in this magnificent and unfathomable unfathomable plan that He has for us? We might try, but we'll never plumb the depths. We'll never get a full understanding until we leave this life of all that is entailed. And, and I, don't, I can't even imagine even then knowing myself. Can we possibly plumb the depths? No, we can't. He's higher than us. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. So it can't mean that we figure it out. We figure out all our salvation and arrive at positional statements that encompass everything around us. It's not work out. A better meaning and rendering would be outwork. We need to outwork our salvation. Salvation should look like something among us. Salvation should look like something. It should have an outworking both individually and collectively. That climbing down of the rungs, the climbing down of the ladder should should be reflected in us. That we should show humility, that we should show submission to God, that we should show servanthood to humanity, that there should be an outworking of our salvation that is evident and beautiful. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When I hear the words fear and trembling, I immediately get the picture of someone so scared that they're shaking. But fear and trembling here is a a phrase, exact phrase that Paul uses in two other letters that means humility and sincerity of heart as reflected amongst yourselves. We are meant to outwork our salvation. It's meant to look like something and it's meant to be shown in humility and sincerity of heart towards each other. It should look like Jesus. We feel like, woof. I haven't got a hope. (laughs) I know me. I haven't got a hope of showing that. And I also know the other people that God has put around me. I haven't got a hope of showing that. Well, then that brings us to the third part of this. that says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. The NLT puts it like this. God is working in you to give you the desire and the power to do what is good. And that is tremendous comfort that God is working in us to give us the desire and the power to do what is good. He is equipping us with everything that we need and He is working something in us in order for us to actually want to do it. And so we, will we step down those rungs of the ladder? Will we decide that it's not all about us, but we're willing to go on behalf of others and climb down the ladder? Are we willing for it to look like something? So this morning, Church, on this Good Friday, may you, may we show humility and sincerity of heart. May you, may we all love and serve all of humanity. 
may you and may we all find great comfort in the fact that God says that he is willing and acting in us according to his good purpose. Or as Hebrews chapter 12 says it, as Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 and 21 says it, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In just a moment, I'm going to hand to um, Pastor Darren. Daz is going to take us through communion. And if your heart is to God, God gives us the most inclusive invitation and you are able to take part in all of this service. You see, he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that is the most inclusive invitation. Who is it for? It's for the world. Who can receive that invitation? Who can opt in? Whoever. And he says, so whoever. So that is, includes you this morning. You can decide that you want to opt into that invitation that he gives you to have eternal life and to not have to worry so much about this life, but to uh, just to allow him to work and to act in you according to his good pleasure. Hi, everybody. We're going to orientate ourselves around communion today here on Good Friday. And I'm going to bring you to a passage of scripture. It's this scene. It's, it's profound. It's provocative. Uh, it, it's, it's precise in its timing in the story of humanity and, and in the unfolding of the final hours of Jesus. It's just an incredible little piece of history. We're going to pick up, it's called or it's commonly known as um, the Passover meal where Jesus eats with his disciples just before he goes to his crucifixion. Let me read to you from the Bible. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat the Passover with you. I've desired to eat it before I suffer, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is a cup in the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, this was a Passover feast that all of the people in the room would have been familiar with. Tell you what they weren't expecting. They weren't expecting Jesus to stand up and say that he was the Passover lamb. That was not in their mind at the time. But Jesus steps up and says that. I just want to step back for a moment and think about what they thought they were coming to, the Passover as it was. And the Passover was a remembrance meal. It was a celebration of the deliverance that God had brought for his people when he brought the Jewish nation out of the land of Egypt by a great and mighty deliverance. That's what they would celebrate, how on the night that God had appointed, they would take a a, uh, an animal, it would be slaughtered, or it was slaughtered, and the blood was put on the doorpost. Sounds so weird to us. It was so familiar to them in their culture because sacrifice was just part of the world that they lived in generally. And so then when God sees the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that home and he would not strike them. He would extend his mercy because of the sacrifice that was represented on the post. Well, 
it moves down time and it is about their great deliverance. They would remember the day when God passed over them and had mercy on them and delivered them into their future and yet in the middle of his judgment. And so that's where Passover started. It's celebrated from that day to this. Even at this time in history, modern Israel still celebrate. There's a seven-day um, period, the, the, the period of unleavened bread. And on the first day is a holiday and it's a holy day. And on the last day is a holiday and a holy day. And Passover is kind of the centerpiece of it all. Family gather and feasts take place and all kinds of things go on in that period. It's very powerful. And that's what Passover was. But Jesus comes in and in this scene, Jesus forever shifts what it is. He says this, let me read it to you again. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body. This is not what you've done in the past. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant. This is the new covenant. It's not the old tradition. It's a new covenant. It's a new day in my blood, which is shed for you. And when Jesus takes Passover, he declare, he's declaring himself the new Passover lamb. He's declaring that he is the one who died for the sins of God's people, that he is now the deliverer, that he's the one who forgives them their sins, that extends mercy to them by the act of the cross, and that he is one who's going to deliver them and lead them into their, to their future. He says, I am the true Passover land. John the Baptist said it like this. The next day, John, seeing Jesus coming toward him, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why post Jesus' death, resurrection and the birth of the church, the apostle Paul goes on to say this, I have received from the Lord, which I deliver now to you, that the Lord on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat of my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he goes on, for as often as you eat this, and uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come. And so that's the message to the church. We proclaim his death until he comes, the death that he died for sin and the coming again to redeem his church and for all who have put their trust in Jesus to be resurrected and eternally live with him. So there is a Passover that was, there is a shift that took place, takes place and Jesus now asks all of humanity to put their trust in him, the death that he died and the resurrection that then took place. And then here are two thoughts I just want to leave you with. Really, they're part of the same thing the Passover in this period. So the Passover as it was, the Passover shift that took place and the Passover in this period. And these aren't the central thoughts, but I think they're interesting in our period in which we live. The first is that communion and Passover, when you look at the Bible, were always lived and had in community. They were a celebration that was done together. And it's a reminder to us as we take communion today and as Bron comes, it's a reminder to us that communion and Passover, since God instituted it thousands of years ago, have always been about His people coming together to remember and celebrate. Communion and Passover were never intended to be things that we did on our own. It's never meant to be a Christian life that's lived in isolation. So we're reminded today, may you, you know, as we take today, may you and I, May we remember that we are called to community 
And this breaking bread that we share, this whole bread that we break into small pieces reminds us that we are all part of each other and that that's an important part of our faith. So we live through this season as we move beyond it, rather than isolate and withdraw into a new normal. May we be those who determine that more and more we are going to live in the community of faith amongst a family of God and come together to celebrate what he has done for us and proclaim what is still to come for us. Finally, I just want to have this thought with you. How amazing that before time began, that God set in place a plan to bring Passover and then to move Passover towards the new Passover, Jesus. And that on that night, just one day before Jesus would die, at the perfect time in history, on the perfect event in the, in, the, in the year for the Jewish people that God would choose for Jesus to stand in the Passover moment and declare that who he was was the new Passover lamb and that a new covenant was born. He planned it before time began, but he had precision to take care of it down to the very hour, the very moment, the people in the room and the, the day it was leading into. And it's an incredible moment reminding us of the precision of God and the profound plan of God that he always brings to pass. The Bible also says that he had you in mind before the foundation of the world. And in this season that we're in, he not only had us in mind and a plan then, but he has this moment right now. He has everything under control. He's got you, he's got this, he's got us. And so as we take communion together today, we're gonna pray and give thanks and then in your own time, we're going to, you can eat and drink together in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. Thank you for Jesus, that he did become the Passover lamb for the world and especially for all those who believe, that he is the one who has dealt with our sin, that he is the one you resurrected from the dead, that life is found in him. God, we thank you today that we're reminded of who he is and what he's done. We thank you today uh, that you have called us to be family and we thank you today that you've got everything in hand. You'd have since the beginning of the world and before it, and you have in this moment we live right now. So we just give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's eat and let's drink. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.